This is labor, 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 Welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and labour history. This is episode 22. Uh, I'm Ed Mustill, joined by Ellie Clark. Hello. And we've got uh, producer Liam back with us behind the desk. Thank God, this might actually sound good for once. Yeah, so the sound quality is going up. Uh, Daniel isn't here though, so the number of mentions of Teamsters will be taking a nosedive, oh. uh, hopefully to zero this month. Although I've just shot that in the foot by bringing Yeah, I feel up. like I have to fly the flag now. Okay, well... You know, don't don't feel like you, don't feel like you have to. Um, this month we're going to be talking about attempts to uh, organise uh, strippers and other sex workers. Um, we've got an interview with Stacey Clare, who's a stripper and activist, uh, union activist, uh, and is uh, working on a book called The Ethical Stripper that examines some of the uh, issues about uh, labour organising in that industry. So, uh, without further ado, uh, this is my interview with Stacey. So can you uh, can you just say a bit about your sort of personal experience of like what sort of uh, workers' organisations, unions have you been involved in in the industry, and and how how did that come about, and how long has that sort of organisation been going on? So I started stripping when I was at uni, and I very quickly started sussing out that there was the problem in the business model where dancers are having to pay the club to work, we're paying a fee, sometimes also getting charged a commission as in like a percentage of what we earn. We're having to hustle for tips, we're having we're having to sell private dances. The club isn't paying us a wage, it's the other way around. And I'm like, mm, this isn't cool. Because to be fair, on a quiet night, you're sat there in your scants and the DJ's getting paid a daily rate, an hourly rate, and the barman's getting paid an hourly rate, and the fucking doorman's getting paid an hourly rate, and you're like, well, I've paid the cut. I mean, that my money's going into their pockets. Right, yeah. And so what that this this ought to be like a business arrangement, so therefore I, um, I should be treated with, I should be allowed to leave early if I want to. Mm. I'm, I, I'm self-employed, so I should be allowed to, like, go home on a quiet night or call in sick or not show up like i but clubs if you you know if you do any of that stuff you're out the door so so it is so it is a model of self-employment essentially or sort of bogus self-employment yeah it's bogus self-employment so the clubs wipe their hands of any responsibility towards you as an employer as soon as you're through the door and they get you to sign contracts that say things like I'm responsible for my own uh, tax and you know self-assessment rah 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 and then they go there you go this is nothing to do with us whether you pay your tax or not you're PAYE we're not doing any of that and then they'll treat you like an employee so they'll tell you when to work they'll yeah. tell you you have to work three nights a week they'll tell you well if you want to work a Saturday then you have to work on Monday They'll not let you go home early. They'll tell you what you have to wear. They'll tell you whether you can use your phone on the club floor or not. They'll tell you if you can, it, like, and that obviously varies and depends as different management styles. But I mean, you know, there's something that uh, there's something about that level of control that attracts narcissistic personalities. You know, there there is com- quite unpleasant working conditions in my industry. So. So I'm like, oh, I've got a really big problem. And then I uh, was around about 2010, 
Uh, I moved to London. Well, I wrote a dissertation about this. Around in 2009, I graduated from art school, but I wrote my dissertation about licensing legislation. So I really got my head into what the Policing and Crime Act was doing, um, how the the current licensing law doesn't do anything for workers' rights. It just is very paternalistic, and it takes a it takes a kind of um, uh, yeah, a very paternalistic approach towards dancers. So, for example, right, the way a strip club runs is they have to have something called an FCV license, which stands for Sexual Entertainment Venue. And the Policing and Crime Act 2009 has made it compulsory for any venue wishing to provide sexual entertainment to have one of these licenses. And those licenses are, get, are harder to get hold of, they're more expensive, uh, there's a lot more ad- admin, and also the local sort of um, uh, locale, the people in the local area can object. Um, it, yeah, it kind of has to go into a little bit of licensing law around this, but for a long time, licensing law has prevented people from objecting on moral grounds. Like, you can't object to a pub near a church on moral grounds, right? Because if, you know, we wouldn't have any pubs in the country yeah. if that was the case. <laughs> so, for a long time, you know, licensing has been about kind of establishing business uh, and, and, and keeping the kind of, you know, moralism out. But yeah, so something stripping is exempt from that. So, you know, when it comes to the public consultation period, like every year a license gets renewed, there's a period of public consultation where the local public can have their say. And of course, out come the moralists, of course, out come the, you know, the moral arguments that always violence against women and blah, blah, blah. And then not a lot of it is um, founded in fact. There's not a lot of uh, sort of like, you know, evidence and academic studies, empirical sorry research that has stood up to scrutiny to prove that there's an established link between strip strip clubs and crime in the area. There's yeah. far there's far greater links between um, domestic violence and the uh, an off license yeah, or yeah. domestic violence and a football match. It's you know that, so, so the, 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 there is not there is not the same link with strip clubs. Do, so does the, the license has to be renewed every year then, does it? Yeah, they do now. Yeah. So, so uh, essentially, you. Well, it depends on the council. I think it depends on the area, but basically, essentially, yes, they do have to be renewed. So, so even so, even in the in the sort of best of times, you you can't be sure that you'll have a job no. twelve months exactly. in the future, sort of thing, right? Right. Exactly. So then, absolutely. So there's no such thing. There is no longevity. It's it's kind of always been like that. There's a culture of, well, try and make as much money as you can now because who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And then, lo and behold, you don't have very high standards of employment. You don't have businesses investing in their workers. You don't have training programs. You don't have any any sense that what we're doing is a profession. Mm. So, And the culture is seen within that. So, of course, anyone like you know, the people that you're describing who disagree with it will go into a strip club with confirmation bias, look around and be like, oh yeah, this is awful. These women are suffering. This is terrible. Of course this must end. Mm. But it's it's the kind of, it's, it's, that's, that's equally problematic because as we also know from the Sheffield kind of narrative is 
you know, we, we shut down the strip club, you're putting people out of work and you're driving women into other forms of sex work, which does happen. It really does. When strip clubs are shut down, strippers turn to other forms of business to kind of get by. And that I don't think that was the aim. No. Um, so, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, anyway, so to go with these FBV licenses, there can be licensing conditions applied to them, uh, attached to them. So if you want to have an FBV license, you have to provide clean drinking water, showers, lockers. Um, there's a semblance of care taken around the workers, but it's, like I say, it's paternalistic to the max because guess what, guys? We've got showers at home. Yeah. We've got, you know, we can buy drinking water, for, like we can drink out the tap. And, yeah. you know, like our changing rooms aren't bloody, you know, like cesspits of fucking crime. Like we didn't ask for lockers. That's not something that's not very high up on our list of priorities. Mm. It's not higher than workers' rights. Mm. And so there's nothing in the Policing and Crime Act that obliges strip clubs. It's not attached to the licensing conditions. They're not obliged to, for example, limit the number of girls working on a shift. Uh, they're not. They don't have to cap the amount of money that they can take off of us. Um, they don't. Certainly, don't have to do PAY or even acknowledge our rights as workers. So therein, kind of, is a is a kind of core issue, which is the licensing doesn't recognise our workers' rights. Therefore, well, the clubs don't recognise our workers' rights. Society at large struggles to recon- recognise our workers' rights. The media sort of can't seem to move beyond representing us any as anything other than kind of objects. Mm. Like the media objectify us probably more than even our customers do. Um, and yeah, and then it, so we've kind of got these like four areas. There's um, what we're trying to kind of do is um, challenge media representation, challenge policy challenge the feminist campaigners that want to shut us down and challenge exploitation within the industry, Mm. which is a huge fight. It's massive. And I got involved in 2010 when I moved to London. I got involved in, there was a little bit of movement around uh, some, I went to some meetings. Um, There was one that was organized by the GMB in in, uh, Tower Hamlets, London. And I was suddenly invited to get up and speak and I was like, all right, let's do a bit of that then, because uh, I'd written a bit on licensing. So I obviously kind of had some stuff to say. And I I guess I kind of um, started to make kind of connections and network, and I started to talk a bit to the media, and I started to recognize, well, there was a, the, the, there's a, the sex worker rights movement is, massive and uh, global and powerful and the call for decriminalization is the you know the ultimate goal but i also recognize that strip clubs and the way strip clubs are run like there's so many differences and nuances that that what strippers are up against is a different set of issues to what other kinds of sex workers are up against and there was a need to create a kind of community and also a space so this is really contentious, but have you heard the word homophobia? Uh, well, yeah, but give, give us a give us a sort of definition and so, explanation. So homophobia, homophobia would be 
the ways that people are conditioned from day one to think of prostitutes as like the worst kinds of human like mm. you, you know nothing is more shameful or more degrading nothing is more horrendous than being a full service sex worker and so what you then have is a culture that you know where sex workers are like the butt of jokes yeah jokes yeah uh, or you have you know kind of conversations private conversations where people are just like oh but i wouldn't i couldn't do that now the thing is that whole phobia exists within among strippers <laughs> some strippers can be incredibly like a bit prudish actually right. like a little bit like oh but i don't touch clients or oh but i would never sleep with a customer or, you know like it's there's a lot of that and also that's backed up because of the because of the differences, because strip clubs are essentially legalized and sex work, other forms of sex work or elements of sex work are criminalized, within the legalized kind of zone, they're all like saying, oh, but we're legal, so we've got nothing to do with that. And they try and legitimize what they do by distancing themselves and passing the stigma on. So, mm. you know, we get stigmatized and we go, yeah, but we're not hookers mm. and then pass it on. Also, there was always a problem within that world and there still is and it's still a co an ongoing conversation like it's an internal thing that we're kind of i guess trying to work through together as a community however there was always a need for strippers to be able to talk to each other about stripper stuff and also to start to bridge those gaps from a safe space where this is our shared experience but actually start to begin building bridges so for example the, in London, a lot of really great um, activism is starting to become kind of done by both and together and for both. And there's a there's a real there's a real sense of kind of strippers and sex workers are now starting to collaborate. Whereas before, I think ten years ago, there was a lot more animosity. So um, we started this movement. We started started a group called the East London Strippers Collective five years ago. Um, that did a bit of work we did a bit of um you know kind of network building community building um we've done some events we did an art exhibition we've done a whole load of stuff i mean we yeah if you look up east london strippers collective kind of parties and events we've done a whole load of mad pop-up nights and they were basically kind of pop-up strip clubs where we were trying to reclaim the narrative and reclaim you know our working conditions and actually say well hey look we we can do our own but we're not going to charge we're not going to exploit ourselves are we like i'm not going to charge myself 50 percent of my own income <laughs> so how about we you know if we're in charge of the space we're in charge of the economics of the working environment then again that sends out a completely different so wider social like a, has a different wider social impact and then i yeah and then it came it came up to um, unite, um, sorry, International Women's Day 2018. There was a big march through Soho organized by sex workers. It's biggest, I mean, I've never seen such a large number of people who turned out for that, sex workers and allies. Um, it, was, it was amazing. We really did. We filled the streets of Soho with stop traffic. People were coming out of pubs. What is this? What? Mm. This? sex workers what <laughs> you know it was bloody brilliant and then that i think it was around about that week that 
the trade union United Voices of the World became opened the door, or they I don't know if they approached X Talk. So there's another organisation called Cross Talk who support migrants and sex workers, um, and there's the English Collective of Prostitutes who are awesome organisation, and there's Swarm, which stands for the Sex Worker Advocacy and Resistance Movement. So there's like loads of you know grassroots organisations all trying to like get somewhere with this. And then United Voices of the World are like a cool, new, young, hip trade union who've only been around for five years, but they're already smashing it because they're like, they've got a different, they've just got a different MO. They, they operate on a grassroots level. It's non-hierarchical. All members are equal. Members support each other, so people in different industries will come out to support each different jobs. It's not like, right, we're teachers, we deal with all the teacher stuff. It's like, it's a much more um, collaborative union. And they specialize in representing people in the gig economy, mm. which is the new big problem of, you know, within, I guess, all labor movements is that is, you know, people being exploited within precarious work who mm. people don't have contracts people don't have sort of long-term status you know it's that's what's happening to a lot of people yeah yeah so like i say we've we've revealed that dancers have something called worker status which is very interesting quite exciting also mm. it's uh, it's interesting that you were saying about this sort of uh that up to a point there's a sort of division between like strippers and other sex workers or there has been in the past and that's something we've looked at like with various groups of workers on the podcast that we've that we've examined uh yeah. do, do you think do you think that's starting to or do you think a, a sort of union like this which is like you say is more sort of non-hierarchical more sort of open do you think that's helpful for trying to sort of break down those sort of barriers and it absolutely is it absolutely is i mean um so just i believe on friday night there there was a fundraiser party to raise money and it was uh you know multiple industries people who work in culture law and sex workers all kind of working together i mean the lawyers so there's people who've joined united voices of the world are lawyers right Mm. and they're helping with our, you know, like legal stuff. It's, of course, we are all stronger together when we can, you know, overcome our differences and actually figure out how to help each other. And then, of course, get strippers into your party, you're going to make loads of money. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, you want to have a hold of fundraiser, bring out the dancing girls. I mean, it, you know, I don't make, not making light of it, but it, it is our, that's what we do for a living. We're yeah. entertainers. We're there to, you know, we're professional entertainers and we know how to party, basically. Yeah, yeah. And so it's that kind of, you know, people forget that that takes a set of skills and time and effort, you know, <laughs> you don't just sort of turn up and put on a pair of high heels. Yeah. There yeah. is actually, um, work involved in in what we do yeah and do, do you find do you find having a union like the uvw uh, so I, I imagine i'm assuming that quite a lot of strippers have like other jobs alongside do, yeah. do, do you find that the union is also useful for issues that you might face in your other jobs as well or 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the beauty of it is that worker status can, when you understand what worker status is, you realize, actually, hang on, how easily we've been exploited by this kind of missing knowledge. So do you, do your listeners know what worker status is? Have you covered that yet? Uh, not explicitly, but if you, if you want to kind of explain it, yeah, that'd be, that'd be yeah. useful. Yeah, well, so it, worker status is um, defined by, like, you can look this up, there's on the government website. Um, it's basically, you can, the confusing thing is you can be self-employed but still have worker status. People generally think you're either self-employed or employed, and that's that, as, you know, binary. When you're self-employed, you can often go and get work from a regular kind of agency, for example. So you can be self-employed and work for Uber. You can be self-employed and work for delivery. You can be self-employed and work for a cleaning company or, you know, a hairdresser's or, like, there's many ways you can be self-employed, but you rely upon a kind of arrangement with uh, you know someone you pay a fee to or a percentage of your earnings in return for the space to work or the you know the, the ability to work right so then within that if though if that body or entity or, or business whoever it is that you get your work from start to apply rules and conditions to you like you have to work at this time and you have to wear this and you have to behave this way. Like the levels of control that they apply to your arrangement define whether you have worker status or not. And mm. uh, we found that it, it often comes down to then deciding when you can and can't work, if you have to wear some kind of uniform or not. And, um, what was the other one? Oh, yeah, the really important one is whether you have the freedom and ability to send someone else to do your job for you. So, for example, if you're self-employed, you get, say you're a self-employed plumber, you get booked to do your job. Well, you, your kid's sick, you've got to go to hospital, so you can send a friend who's a, a, another plumber, someone you recommend, okay, you know, you can do that job. Yeah. Well, if you have work estate, I mean, so if if the club, like in, in our situation, the clubs won't let us do that. If we call in sick, we either get sacked or fined or have to pay. I don't know. It's, it's outrageous the way they sort of deal with those situations. Mm. But the fact is that because they won't let us send someone else or swap shifts with someone, that literally means we have got worker status. So where they're washing their hands of us as, um, you know, uh, any responsibilities employers, mm. they shoot themselves in the foot by failing to recognise our true definition of our true um, status as self-employed, and so they are leaving themselves wide open to be pulled up and to be actually fined and taken to court. Mm. And mm. so there are some really um, interesting cases, the milestone cases, for example, the Pimlico plumbers, a um, couple of, was that two summers ago now? Was last summer or summer before? That's that company that is run by that sort of Essex wide boy character who's a big yeah, donor to the is, Tory parties. I can't remember his name off the top thing, of my I head. Saw yeah. that, I saw the interview he did on Channel 4. Like, they got him on Channel 4 to do an interview. And I was sat there like, oh, my God. He dresses, sounds like, has the same 
bloody personality as a strip club boss. He looks <laughs> like one. He sounds like one. He's basically Peter Stringfellow in 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 the plot. He's the Peter Stringfellow of the plumbing world. Yeah. I was just like, this is, this blows my mind. So anyway, yeah, he um, the Pimlico Plumbers case was a real milestone, real milestone because that showed precisely the problem of claiming that your workers are all self-employed but actually failing to recognize their self-employed status and leaving yourself leaving yourself wide open to be prosecuted and mm. he and so he they have now got to go back and pay i guess something like four years worth of paye and um stuff uh, unpaid holiday pay so people with work so sorry i should go back um a few steps. People with worker status, if you can prove that you have worker status, you have a set of employment rights. You have the right to holiday pay, sick pay. You have the right to national minimum wage. You have the right to join a union. So you have the right to bargaining power. Um, you have the right to not work more than 48 hours in a week if you don't want to. Um, you have the right to whistleblow. Um, there's a few others I can't remember off the top of my head. If you look this up again, the gov website, just worker status, mm. there is a, it is a list. Mm. And if your boss has been treating you as an employer, sorry, as, as an employee, but claiming that you're self-employed, then you have a case. Yeah, yeah. And anyone, anyone can join a union like United Voices of the World, or there's also the Industrial Workers of the World, uh, I forget. There's a there's a few. There's a couple mm. uh, specialising in these cases. IWGB so as well. You, they've done some. The, the who? The uh, IWGB, um, in, independent yes, workers of Great Britain. Independent workers of Great Britain. Yeah. Uh, they've yeah. they they organise a lot of cleaners and couriers and and those sort of workers. Yeah. 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 yeah exactly. So I mean, it's fucked up that we all have to that we have to do any of this. Stuff, mm. that workers are not obliged sorry employers are not obliged by law to comply with these regs but the fact is this is what 150 years of trade union activism has given us and we may as well use the tools yeah. that we have in front of us yeah and um, rather than trying to i guess i don't know like tear down the system and rebuild it i guess you know, in a utopian i think a lot of i think when it comes to sex work people try and fast forward to the utopia of um, abundance instead of scarcity and they sort of assume that oh well in the perfect world there wouldn't be any sex work anyway yeah. so then let's just ignore that because it will go away so you once don't have to sort of deal with the day to day yeah. and it's like yeah. and I'm like mm, not sure not sure about that I mean at, at present sex workers are some of the most marginalised and vulnerable members of society and, and incredibly oppressed mm. um, and so actually is is a is is a perfect world is are we fighting are we fighting for to protect the most vulnerable among us is that what we're doing and if so why are we why are we leaving out such a mm. huge kind of demographic which mm. is of course people struggling to survive yeah in terms of the clubs as employers and the sort of demands that you want to or are placing on them that the sort of industrial demands like is, um, are, are you sort of are you sort of looking at so i imagine some of them are chains and possibly quite big companies some of them might be independent companies whatever are you, are you yeah. looking for sort of 
position of collective bargaining, like union recognition? Is that the is that one of the goals, or how feasible do you it, think it, that it would is, be? It is one of the goals. I mean, I I couldn't tell you what the list of demands is yet because it's still kind of we're still working this stuff out. Mm. We do know that we are we are intending to prove that dancers have worker status, but in order to do that, we need to see we need to take one worker through a legal procedure like the guy from Pimlico Plumbers did to establish the case law. Yeah. So it's like we haven't done that yet with with a with a strip club and at the moment we've had I mean we have had strippers who've been sacked from work and through their you know support from the union they've actually been able to claim unpaid holiday pay and stuff like that that's been kind of settled out of court because mm. the clubs just they don't want that they're not going to fight it. And of course these clubs have got all the money in the world to keep throwing at the problem. So, you know, we keep on getting kind of dancers who could come forward with a claim, but then the club just will pay them off because, of course, we all need the fucking money. We, we take the money and then that's it. Signing yeah. on disclosure agreement, it goes away, never gets, never comes out in the press. Conversation doesn't change in the wider public. So, um, that's but that's in that's by the by. I mean, we 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 do know because we've consulted with you know some of the best. I mean, we went to see Michael Ford QC at Bristol University, and we showed him some of these kind of bogus um, contracts that clubs make us sign. And he was like, "Well, yeah, we've got a very strong claim for worker status here." Mm. So, mm. regardless of whether we do that or not, if someone wants to do that, we still we still want dancers to know that there is legal procedure. That yeah. there is recourse, that there is, you know, accounts that clubs do aren't need to be held accountable and we can take action. And the more I think the more we start to basically just kind of take pop shots, that the clubs start to get the message and they start to realise like, oh right, yeah, they are human beings, mm. actually. And uh, okay. And I, personally my I think the first thing I'd demand of clubs is that they pay their fucking workers a minimum wage <laughs> yeah. for the hours that they work. Yeah. If they want us to turn up at 8 p.m. and work till 5 a.m., regardless of when if any club uh, people walk through the door, they want us to sit there in our uniform of high heels and lingerie mm. and makeup, and they want us to behave nicely and talk to their customers, as we do anyway, because that's our job. If they want us to do all that, they can guarantee us a fucking wage. Or there can be there can be some kind of model where, you know, okay, strippers can have the potential to make a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. If a high roller walks in and you get, you know, land them in VIP for the rest of the night and they just want to drink champagne and talk bollocks with you because that's they've got more money than they know what to do with, yeah. then excellent. But that one stripper has made a ton of cash. The club has then taken a percentage, but none of the other dancers have made anything. Yeah. Um, that's a very that's a very common occurrence in our industry. There's also another one where customers will come in, they pay a door fee to the club, they pay for a drink to the club, they sit and watch us perform on stage, and then they leave mm. without spending any money on us. Mm. And then we're not getting so that that money from the door and the, that's the profit that the club's made. We're not seeing any of that. And then the club are taking money off us. I mean, I don't, I can't. I don't know where to start, but it's like there's something so arrogantly, like that. That's fucked up. Yeah. It's not what I do. It's not what. It's not that I sell my sexual labour or that I perform, you know, sexual labour for a living. That 
that we're all we are all okay with that. No mm. one is coercing us. No one is making us do that. The, the wider public narrative is that we're all being controlled. We're all being told. We're, no, we love dancing. We love getting our tits out. We're all exhibitionists. We love what we do. But we don't like being financially exploited by a business model, and we don't like you lot out there failing to pick up on that mm. because that's what we that's what we see day in day out we are we are on the receiving end of this financial exploitation and yet the arguments against sex work are all ideological yeah does does the, uh, the the sort of that sort of differential between like the sort of money that individuals can earn that you mentioned does that yeah does that does that have a does that sort of stand in the way of like building a sort of collective consciousness because pe people can earn such vastly it, different amounts of can, money and it, it can and of course and you'd be staggered i think it's testament to the fact to, to our humanity as dancers and as sex workers that we do form any community at all within a business model where we're all set up working in competition with each other the fact that any of us can forge friendships or community or solidarity or anything like that for it. But in the, in the final years before it shut down, we formed the Eastman Strippers Collective out of that venue because one of the things about that place, the woman that ran it used to have basically a, a, a limit, a cap on the number of dancers working each shift. So she, so with, with the White Horse, it was like, it meant that we were all more or less, and the house fee was very small. I mean, I'm talking, it was like no more than 40 quid, between 10 and 40 pounds, even in, in this day and age, that's totally affordable. So we were all guaranteed, if we're doing private dances at 10, 20 pounds each, we're guaranteed to make some money. So it was like, it was a sort of place where you make less, there's less earning potential. You didn't get all these like high rollers, VIP champagne nonsense, but you'd get, you know, daily, uh, walk-in, passing trades, local, uh, yeah, just like local uh, people who just want to come and have a pint and spend some time with a female in a different context, which is what we're there for. Mm. So we, um, yeah, we used to all make a little bit of money and that meant that it was kind of like a less toxic work environment. We could, we could actually relax a bit. We could actually be a bit more kind of, yeah, the sense of camaraderie, sharing makeup backstage. Um, and yeah, building community, I think, is the, the only way forward. Um, so you mentioned the uh, possibility of kind of legal test cases that might sort of change uh, worker status and that sort of thing. What else are the sort of next steps of organising the industry as far as you can see in the sort of short term? So, well, I... I'm a sort of firm believer, and this is where I think maybe I'm a little bit of a an outlier or a bit of a maverick within the union activism scene, is I'm a firm believer in the immediate creation of alternative employment. So to me, it's kind of like it's direct action when you've given a sex worker an opportunity to work without being exploited. And we need to start creating new business models and new business structures and new ideas and be a bit more creative with, I think, with, with what our industry kind of can be. So you're talking so, about sort of worker-run worker or worker-led co-ops yeah. and that, that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So one of the things East London Strippers Collective still does is we run a life drawing class. Mm. And it happens every Monday night in Shoreditch. And it's become, it's done really well. We have strippers as models. So we book a stripper and put up a pole. People come and draw. And it's, you know, it's sort of undermining so many of the, it's undermining a lot of stigma. It's, it's inviting, you know, new audiences to basically come and consume our sexual labor in a different, very different context. We are completely in control. That whole class is organized by strippers. So members of the East London Strippers Collective, myself and two other members are, you know, in charge of the whole thing. We hold the space, we hold the finances, we, you know, share the profit. And it's like, it works. Mm. It works really well. It's, and, and every time, you know, we pay, we pay strippers a fee that is, it's competitive, as in it's a lot more than what life models usually get paid per hour. It's not what, it's obviously not, you know, like a stripper could potentially make thousands of pounds, but it's, it's enough to make it like it's like a day's work you know yeah like yeah. it's 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 a it's a it's an amount of money that you'd get expected to pay for a few hours of labor so it's you know we i'm i'm committed to that idea i think that the next phase has got to be certainly for the east london strip perspective and that's something i'm going to be suggesting to the rest of the crew soon is that we set up kind of like an agency where on similar grounds we are so strip clubs might shut down but the demand won't go away like people are always a bit curious like, there's always going to be like someone who wants to book a stripper for someone's birthday or a stag do or mm. you know there's it's like it's a it's a working class tradition it's a kind of it doesn't have to be exploitative that's the thing people people don't get. It can be done respectfully and fairly, it can, and it can be done with with you know respecting workers, valuing their time and agency. So we kind of I think that the idea is to set up a a kind of agency where we're going and performing these kind of private gigs, but also with safety and mm. security built mm. into the process. So I think that strippers shouldn't be going anywhere on their own for a start. I don't think any of us should be working alone. We should be working in pairs mm. or with a driver or with some kind of security. Some, you know, like I've, I've performed, I've, I've done a lot of private work outside of strip clubs. And if you don't have a, a witness, if you don't have someone with you, if you don't have um, an agency who knows where you are or, you know, if you're not part of a group, you're really fucking vulnerable. Yeah. You know, yeah. I did it. I've done a, a, a gig at a, some guy's flat in Orpington, a bunch of lads who were having a game of poker and they wanted to book a stripper, like a topless waitress. Mm. And they were really not cool. And I remember I was kind of leaving there and I, I, I just thought, oh man, like, if I, was, if I was someone less assertive, if I was someone less privileged, if I was someone who didn't speak English as a first language, who didn't have all the... You know, have a very like long list of privileges that I would be even more vulnerable. Mm. And yeah, it's 
it's I guess you know that side of things that's what people just assume is always like that yeah people just assume that oh, we're always vulnerable but it's not but intrinsic no, to the work it's the way that it's way that the industry it's the way is it's done it's the way it's set up yeah. it's the way it's provided and it's the, it's the culture and it's the business the profession and how it's established and I I do think that I I do part of me gets a kind of little bit of a tingly you know goosebumpy feeling when I start thinking that maybe the sex worker rights movement we're having now may in 150 years time look like people being able to safely use their sexuality the way they want to safely mm. like i've got a friend who introduced me to this idea that if you can't find your sexual autonomy how can you find your you know autonomy in any other area of your life if you can't in your most vulnerable and private and intimate state, if you can't assert your boundaries and you can't establish what you want and what you don't want, then how the fuck else do we do it? Like, mm. so is it alright for me to swear? Uh, absolutely not. That'll all be edited out afterwards. <laughs> no, it's it's per it's um, perfectly so, fine. Yeah, I mean, I'm I've I've read a, a book a while back called The Ethical Slut, which has made a big impact on me because I've gone and ripped off the name. <laughs> 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 myself the ethical stripper. <laughs> but um, it made a real impact on me. Uh, you know that these people that wrote this book are advocates of pleasure. That you know, sex is nice and pleasure is good for you. That we you know we have so much we, we're so hung up around sex that you know the idea of selling it is impossible mm. and actually you know for those of us that do it that sell sexual labor we're we see from the other side just how ashamed people are just how much guilt and shame and how destructive that shame is within people's lives how shame is toxic mm. how you know husbands come to strip clubs because they're ashamed of who they are at home or they are shamed by their uh, circumstances it's it's very um you know we raise children once well, you you i'm sure as a british person you'll relate to this any mention of sex as a child is associated with ridicule mm. hysterical laughter and finger pointing it's all kind of uh, you know and we we really we really have very very poor um conversations and um kind of public uh dialogues about what sex is in our lives mm. you know i mean it's not just it's a it's a it's an appetite it's something that motivates us it's something that you know it's clickbait it's we all have a sexual drive no one wants to talk about that. Yeah. No one wants to talk about it. It's just, well, you just keep that private, private bedroom yeah, and yeah, yeah. No, no, no one's business. Well, fine. If that's, if it is private and secret and because it's to be kept the bedroom, better make sure that those people that are off doing, having sex in private are safe, no? Mm, mm, Whether they're mm, being paid or not. Mm, mm. I mean, I, I, I despair of the stories of, you know, like gender violence and what's kind of, happening in the world mm, mm. you know but then as a sex worker i see that actually the establishment of boundaries and a culture of respect and consent can actually have a profound impact on people's lives mm, mm. you know so i know an awful lot of women who've entered sex work 
and through their jobs have become much more assertive, much more powerful, much more likely to say no, much more, you know, it, it enables, uh, entitled to, you know, to just walk away. I mean, it's, it's, it's an ongoing problem because the, you know, the work environment doesn't support us to do that. Yeah. The work environment, for example, if you're at work and you've got a customer and he's being a dickhead, but you're the only one in there making any money. If you walk away from that customer, you're not going to make any more money that night. And so you have to tolerate how much of a dickhead he's being. Mm. You have to, mm. obviously, kind of your consent, our consent is messed around or is, is, is interfered with by the economics of strip clubs. Yeah. And I'd like to see a strip club where consent is built in from the bloody start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, as a, as a sort of final question, what, what would you like to see the the sort of wider labour movement do to like support organising the industry or showing solidarity and that sort of thing? I mean, I see a lot of I see a lot happening already that I like. Um, you, yourselves and people kind of reaching out, people from different areas, kind of going, oh, actually, we need to talk about this, don't we? Um, it's not necessarily the, the labour movement. I think I think at the end of the day, at the core of the labour movement, there is kind of like an understanding that work is work and all workers need to be protected regardless of what job they're doing. Mm. And the ideologists like to kind of pile on top of sex work for their own reasons. But I mean, I think actually the media has a lot more power to change narratives you know like i see continuous i mean the way i'm objectified by the bbc jesus christ they you know continuously get me on there on radio four or i get you know after oh we talk to someone on radio sheffield in the morning and i'm like yeah all right and then they go and you know get someone else from the other side to balance and then that person is always a labor mp or a counsellor or someone who's never met a stripper, someone who's literally, and they'll get to trot out all the usual tropes that, oh, you know, strip clubs equal violence and women feel uncomfortable, and they get to state all this stuff as fact without actually having their narrative kind of properly interrogated mm. and scrutinised. I think I think that's really what I'd like to see happen more is that is the narratives around sex work being really interrogated and scrutinised properly and sincerely because it's a lot more complex. It's not black and white. It's not yes and no. It's not it's either good or bad. It's it's really complex. You know, they're, like all kinds of sex workers have all kinds of relationships with their work. Yeah. And we need to, I think at the very core, we need to design policy around the voices and the experiences of the people doing the work, not the people who are offended by it mm. not the people not the people in the surrounding area who have to live next door it it because it's next door it's not in their bloody house it's it's not you know like i live across the street from a noisy takeaway but that's a business and you know what what right have i to complain, I mean, complain about the noise but i don't get to just shut them down because yeah. it's a nuisance do yeah. i but yeah. somehow strip clubs are seen with that kind of Oh, but because it's then it's good for feminism, so let's shut it down, and then it goes away, and then we think the problem's gone. Mm. Not, it's not like that at all. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, turn up to the women's marches. 
talk to sex workers, go online, do the research, look up grassroots sex worker organizations, mm. read about decriminalization, um, follow, follow brilliant strippers on Instagram. I mean, Jack the Stripper, Lux ACL, there's a lot, there's a lot out there. Um, I think, I think the thing about social media kind of censoring us is a kind of clear knock-on effect of the U.S. laws that have um, banned sex workers from advertising online, and now you know Facebook and Instagram are like, oh, yeah, adult stuff. That's you know community mm-hmm. guidelines nonsense. But the fact that we've been able to form because we've been able to form community amongst ourselves through social media has given our movement such a kind of huge impetus to move forward and take one sort of giant high heel step forward. You know, the more people can support us with that, the better. So uh, that was an interview with Stacey Clare, who is a stripper and activist and is working on a book called The Ethical Stripper that should be out next year, so uh, keep an eye out for that. Um, I thought that was really interesting in terms of an overview of like how the industry works and the sort of working practices and the, the, the just the state of it, you know, the, the, the ultra-precarity and exploitation that exists. I absolutely agree. I mean, um, I don't think most people are aware that, for instance, you have to pay the house a certain fee just to be able to perform, and it doesn't matter. That fee is still astronomical whether you're working on a Monday night or you're working on a Saturday night or whatever. Um, I found that really interesting. Um, I also found it quite interesting thinking about the, um, I guess, the culture of moralism that comes around stripping and things like that, and people, people being able to have um, control over whether you are allowed to work or whether a club is is allowed to to perform based on moral objections, because that you know there are a million businesses in this world that are absolutely morally. Abhorrent. Abhorrent, yeah. And <laughs> nobody, but we don't, as she said, you know, we don't have a say over that. We don't get to say whether, you know, arms dealers can arms deal or yeah, whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, that was really interesting. And, you know, the trade union movement doesn't say we're not going to organise workers in this factory because they're making yeah. missiles or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, is, it is held to like a different moral standard by, still yeah. by some people in the movement. I mean, so Stacey mentioned that. Uh, in passing uh, Sheffield and the, the context for that just so that that kind of makes sense is that there is a spearmint rhino in Sheffield and every time the sort of licence renewal comes around there's this sort of debate in the local labour movement between uh, basically people that the, the sort of labour council and uh, for, for their own reasons for, for like financial reasons sort of want to keep it open and and te- vote to, tend to vote to keep it open mm-hmm. and then there are some people in the movement who basically want, want it to be closed out for for those sorts of reasons I think and the, the workers themselves have, have started to have a, a voice in that in that debate now particularly this year which I think is a welcome development I also just think stuff like this I know we say this a lot about lots of different industries but it doesn't stop being true about lots of different industries i think it's it's really important to look at these these performers these uh these sex workers as workers so and i think that there is there is a big issue on both sides of the debate actually with not understanding 
the nature of the work that strippers perform. So on one side of the debate, yeah, you have got this moralist um, kind of, these people are all exploited, but not in the ways, not in the sort of ways that we've been talking about today. You know, they're all exploited in, in a kind of different way and, yeah, yeah. and they have no agency of their own. And then on the other side of the debate, I think more and more, it's becoming more and more common to see stripping as um, something to aspire to, especially in like hip hop culture. This is something, stripping's really at the forefront of that culture. And you've got some genuine superstars that have come out of that. You've got people like Amber Rose, Malia Michaels, Cardi B, people like that, um, who all kind of got their come up working in a strip club which on one hand is good because it's changing the way people think about stripping and the way people talk about stripping but on the other hand is really bad as well because i think people walk away from these stories with the idea that like strippers make loads of money and they're doing fine and everything's really great and as long as you're clever um and as long as you're quick and as long as you're this you can make loads of money from stripping um and, it, and it's really empowering and it's really great um, when actually, you know, your your superstar strippers are the the most tiniest um, part of the stripper community. Most yeah. people are not making money the way Amber Rose ended up making money and, and people like that. So, and yeah, it's interesting to to look at this and, and, and understand that these people are workers, that they need to have their workers' rights protected. Uh, that they're put into a situation that is hyper-exploitative and also where they are forced to compete with each yeah, other yeah. for money. Uh, and that's something that that needs to be taken on and it needs to be dealt with by the unions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's really, like, admirable about a lot of the stuff that Stacey was talking about is, is that, like, the whole structure of the industry is set up to, like, pit people against each mm. other and yet the response to that has been, like, a sort of collective development of a collective consciousness where you know the response could have just been oh well you know I guess we all better just work harder then and like you know just try and get on ourselves yeah. uh, which I'm sure like in any industry I'm sure some people do have that attitude and that you know for some people it works out and but for a lot of people unless you do have the collective organization you're never going to change the the working practices are you in, in your mm -hmm. workplace mm -hmm. so I, I think it's, it's, it's really interesting I mean I, I've only known a little bit of the background of like uh, sex worker organising in like modern times and like Stacey did mention the GMB as well and that, so they've been uh, f through the International Union of Sex Workers which I think sort of became a, a branch of the GMB um, th they, there has been sort of mainstream union activity and earlier this year the uh, GMB in in Glasgow have uh, set up a, a sex workers branch as well and that but that was at the initiative of, of, of a worker herself and the, and the International Union of Sex Workers was it at the initiative of of, uh, of a group of work I think I think mainly migrants as mm -hmm. well because they very deliberately chose to have the word international in their mm -hmm. name to, to stress that like a lot of sex workers are migrants as well um, which is so it's good that they're like grassroots initiatives but they also the, i suppose the corollary to that is like they sort of have to be grassroots initiatives because the unions generally haven't been particularly yeah. interested in organizing <laughs> this industry. i mean you know it's like you were saying about about strippers being performers like there is a union for performers it's equity yeah but i don't think any strippers are in equity or they i don't think they represent them so yeah. obviously historically it's not been seen as a as part of 
the entertainment industry, industry or yeah, you know, whatever. So, so yeah, it's it's really interesting to see like grassroots initiatives expressing themselves as a form of trade unionism. Mm -hmm. It's really it's really positive, I think. That brings us to the end of episode 22, which has been, in my opinion, an absolutely great episode. In fact, it's one of my favourites. So um, would really like to thank our guest, Stacey Clare, who has given us an incredibly comprehensive and informative interview about organising strippers and sex workers. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next month. Labour Days was presented by Ellie Clark and Ed Mustill and produced by Liam McNulty. Additional research was provided by Holly Smith. Find us on your podcast platform of choice and do leave us a review. Uh, search for Labour Days podcast on social media. 